Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. We really do work with what we call the bet brain. You know, what is going on in your body brain, we call it, which is your nervous system. So what state are you in? Do you need to hit the reset button to get into baseline, which would be breathing or looking around your environment and finding five of your favorite color and just allowing that part of your brain to realize because it doesn't know the, the difference between a real or perceived threat. And so you have to give it data and it talks to you through the five senses. It doesn't talk to you through calm down. Like my favorite meme is nobody in the history of man has calmed down by being told to calm down. <laughs> it's just like so true. So the more your brain actually, when it hears calm down, it's like, oh, freak out, freak out more because our brain doesn't work in opposites and especially not our subconscious. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, I am here with Stacia Rivera. Stacia is an expert in the science behind optimized performance, whether it is flying aircraft or building wins in sports or working through a particular recovery program, the concepts are the same. Stacia developed these processes as a therapist working in trauma, addiction, and family systems, as well as being a former Division I athlete and coach at all levels of competition. In both arenas, Stacia studied the science behind performance, applied behavior, motivation, and connection, and it all came together to create two companies, AQ Athletics and Aviation Quotient. Today, Stacia works as a stress management professor at a top-ranked aviation college. She also works with Gen Z athletes that compete at high-level high schools, colleges, or at the pro level. Stacia and I professionally worked on a case together. I am not sure where this client would be without Stacia's expertise in traumatic brain injury. It was such a learning experience for me to understand how trauma, particularly TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, can affect addiction recovery. And she was instrumental in this client getting better. So I, I love that story. And I wanted her to come on and talk about the work that she's doing now and the importance of stress management as a tool for any kind of success. It is so, so important that we are able to manage our nervous systems. And that's really what addiction recovery is about, is about a new way to manage our nervous system. Stress management, people. Important. Okay. I'm going to let Stacia fill you in on the rest. So without further ado, let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Stacia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's great to see you. Great to see you too. So uh, I wanted to have you on. We worked together on a case 
many years ago at this point. You have an amazing background in trauma and in head injuries. So I wanted to have you on to talk about that because I reference our time working together all the time and how previous injuries can affect the ability to get sober. So I want you to introduce a little bit of your background and what you're doing now, because that's different. You were working in addictions when we first met, and now you are doing something different on your own. So will you tell us a little bit about that? So I was trying to think about how long it's been and I miss working in addictions. But now what I do is I work. um, So my background was addictions and I was a trauma therapist and kind of got into the field accidentally, um, but had a lot of background with trauma and addictions in my own family and in my own story. And then I needed to get an internship and I couldn't, I wanted to work with kids or teens and nobody would call me back. And so I ended up in addiction treatment and it was the best thing for me ever for my own recovery and just in my learning. And I quickly realized I didn't know enough and was like, I cannot be effective with with my only my master's degree. At least for me, I felt that way. So I went back to school and just started studying all the neuroscience pieces of everything and the trauma side of everything. Spent three years learning about the nervous system and that's kind of where our work was and then attachment and how we connect. And another two years learning about how we modify our personality to get our needs met from zero to seven. So super nerdy zone. But now what I've done is I've taken that information and I'm working with high level athletes with their performance. And so really kind of teaching them the ins and outs of how they're wired so that they can both have a more fulfilling experience and enjoy it, but also optimize their performance and understand themselves and how to get into those flow states easier. So I do that with athletes. And then I also teach it to aviation students, aviation and STEM students. Uh, So I work with people future pilots and engineers and different majors at a university here and teaching them how to do that. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I I love that you started in addictions. Now you're working with students. Now you're working with athletes because there's so much crossover in those high performing areas. So many places that you could use that information. And and when we were working together, your information was invaluable to the, the case we were working on, which we can talk about a little bit later. I want to get into a bit of what your story looked like and kind of where you came from to get to the place where you started applying for those positions to work with children and then fell into addiction. My personal story definitely is riddled with with a good good old trauma history and a and a good a dose of addiction and in all areas. I think in my family system as well as just um, for myself, of course. It kind of just got to hang in the background. Honestly, a lot of the reason was because I was a Division One athlete, and so I was able to kind of balance both worlds for a long time. And it wasn't until athletics left my life that my addiction just ramped up and. Um, Um, It was kind of game over at that point because I didn't have the schedule, the normalcy, the attachments, the mentors, my teammates kind of keeping me in line and helping me. And so it was a lot of that. And then also while I was in college, my um, biological dad had been homeless for 10 years and came back into my life at that time and claimed sobriety. And so he now has almost 30 years sober. And so that was a huge part of the pivot for me in starting starting to look at my family history of, you know, mental health and addiction and starting to realize some places where I needed to kind of 
look, but it really was once I started to get into working with other people that it was like it woke up something in myself that I knew I had more work to do. And it was just kind of this symbiotic relationship where I knew I needed to learn more to help them, but they were also helping me with my own journey. Yeah, yeah. So my mother ran master's track and my sister went to the junior Olympics for track. And what I saw with the athletes that they hung around was there was this underdevelopment socially and emotionally because they were so good at this other thing. They spent all their time doing that and skipped out on a lot of other normal pieces of growing up. One woman I know, she's incredible, intelligent, extremely well-educated, extremely all these things. And dating is a mystery to her. I thought this was so interesting because how is that possible with all, you know, you look at all these other things, they're such an incredible athlete. They had mentorships, they had relationships, but there's something that you miss out on. And I don't know what it is because I just witnessed it from afar. When you're in that level of intensity of athletics at a young age, people seem to discover once the athletics go away. And sometimes it's addiction. Sometimes it's inability to have romantic relationships. Sometimes, you know, it's all these different things, but there's some developmental stuff that seems to be lost in that athleticism intensity. Did you relate to any of that? Did you see that? Yes. I've never really... Wow. The question just made me think about it from a completely different paradigm in a way, the way you phrased it, but 100% yes. Because I think something to be elite, you have to almost deny certain parts of your life or your development to just have that hyper focus. And so part of what I've really discovered is I think that's what leads to burn out an injury in athletes and a lack of fulfillment because I think a lot of athletes are actually driven by history and and biopsychosocial and trauma and they it's same as like celebrities in a way I think of them synonymously and so there's just this drive to be successful and it's almost like anything else is just seen as frivolous in a way but then the paradox of that is you don't really enjoy it. You don't really get the wins that you really want to have, you know, very rarely. It's almost just like you're always chasing the carrot, you know, and hoping for the reward. And so absolutely. I mean, I tell people all the time, like it is literally hilarious that this is what I do for a living now, because I was the most dysregulated, like low EQ athlete. I mean, I always was a natural leader, but not in an effective way that where there was just missing pieces for sure. And so that's exactly what we're getting into with some of our college curriculum. We were serving for the first time an entire athletic department with our curriculum. And so the next step with them is developing what we're calling like Univ 202, which is dating and different things you develop and need to address in your sophomore year and then 303 your junior year and so on, because it was actually that particular athletic director that was like, hey, can you make this like a series? And I'm like, yes, we definitely can do that. You know, there's no shortage of things we need to talk about with this, like what you just highlighted, this lack of opportunity to develop. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Another piece I noticed was that it was so much harder for that group of people to realize 
realize or to admit addiction because it was so out of line with the level of discipline that in all these other areas of their life, how could it be possible and then have this addiction? And it made it harder for them to see it. Absolutely. Because I think in societal terms, we're seeing success, right? We're seeing the scholarship. We're seeing the degree earned. We're seeing these benchmarks that are supposed to happen. Even the job after college, you know, because you've been somebody that can be hireable. But then that maintenance, that life on life's terms part is just so underdeveloped in so many people. And there's just this crash and burn, unfortunately. And it's really easy to interweave addiction into, oh, we're just blowing off steam. We're celebrating a win. If EQ is low or we're only focusing on success, then there is going to be a medicating principle there with the emotions, right? There's going to be something where we cope. And I think we're seeing that already with Gen Zs, especially, you know, because of just many different dynamics. But um, I think, you know, stirring that in with then the pressures additionally to perform in these different ways, whether you're flying a million dollar aircraft or, you know, you're trying to win a championship. And that kind of leads, segues us into our meeting, which was, I, I don't know about you, but one of the most wild experiences in terms of like family dynamics and all the things that were going on. But I did an intervention and I was able to get the son to the program where you were working, which frankly, in my head at the time was, I figured there was no way he was getting on a plane. I, I was shocked I was able to get him on a plane, but it worked and I was grateful. And so we got him on this plane, we got him to you and he was there for a little bit and the family relationships between the parents hadn't spoken in 15 years, which you could feel when we did the intervention. And so there was a lot of, of tension there, but the son, there are our client was not responsible responding well to kind of the recipe that the majority of people respond to pretty well in terms of treating addiction for long periods of time, day in, day out, while living in the place, whatever. And I was out of my league here and you were working on the case and I'll, I'll let you take it from there, but I, you blew my mind. And since then, this is something that I take into consideration all the time because it, we were able to have success after this. So do you want to talk a little bit about what you were seeing with this client? Yeah. I mean, all the things you just described as far as um, the family dynamics. And then we started to really track that there was, I think, um, just neurologically, there was something going on and we were picking up on it. And and so then we started to be able to have that discussion with him as far as, you know, is there a history of a brain injury and, and trauma, maybe pre-memory that we're just not acknowledging as part of the story. And I just feel like that's the key is like, once people know why they're doing what they're doing, I see the transformation over and over. It doesn't matter who I'm working with. And so I always just felt like that was my role was like, figuring it out, you know, like helping them be able to see what their truth was, whatever that was. And it, that was the turning point, because then I think it, we were able to normalize it. And I felt like he could have some self-empathy. And then the family was able to have that. And we were just able to kind of get moving. It really blew my mind. And and from my perspective, what happened, I'll just tell a little bit about the family. So the mom and dad had not spoken in 15 years. It was an ugly divorce. Dad was not fond of people of color. Mom had married a African gentleman. They were all in the same room together. And I, it was my first intervention. And I was like, Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, Someone know that. It was so hot. It was steaming hot. And the client was already 
the client was already homeless. So like when you have a homeless client, you don't have anything to take away from them. So in the middle of this intervention, I was like, we're going to call your drug dealer and let him know you're being watched by the cops. I have no idea if that was ethical or not, but that is what happened. And so now he had no way of getting... It was... But anyway, like when I say that I was literally like, oh shit, I've made a huge mistake. And then we're on our way to one of the airports. It was the wrong airport. We had to turn around almost... I mean, it was it was from A to Z. So we it was a couple of months when he was in the program where you were and he wasn't making a lot of progress. The, the conversations with the family members that you and I were on the phone with, we were like, oh no, how do we do this? And you asked him, have you ever had any traumatic brain injury? And he's... And the answer was, no, I've never been hospitalized for anything. If, if you remember, it was like, but there was, you know, and then it came out, there was this car accident. Well, the car accident, he never went to the hospital. He went off the road. Apparently he walked away from the crash, right? But he did have some sort of injury. And you, you said, well, we can do the therapy differently. We can speak to him. We can talk about things differently if we know this. And this may have actually affected him. And I thought, no way. He went off the road. He didn't go to the hospital. You know, like, what are you going to... Is it like a different language? Like, what do you mean you're going to speak to him differently? And lo and behold, I mean, it had been months and you guys were looking at, you know, like, maybe we have to discharge him. Maybe, you know, it was it was for real the end of the road. And it was whatever you started doing, which I, I was not present for the part where you guys, the actual therapy, but he, I mean, he made a full recovery after that discovery. And I started to understand and look into the neurobiology as well around not only does trauma change your personality, you know, change change your brain function, all these things, but how little can actually impact it. Jet skiing apparently like slams your brain into the front of your head and all, you know, these things that can really make a difference. Also that emotional trauma can show up on a brain scan as head trauma, depending on, you know, how severe it was. And there may have been no physical part to that, but it can. Sh and so we are really, really needing that neurobiological component that you're talking about in order to save lives. I suspect this client would have been like considered unreachable had you not discovered that. And I think I just thank my training, like I've said, and I think that I was able to do that in different places, because when you can just see the whole picture or a part of the picture that might be missing, then that's what creates that bridge to that, you know, it really, to, I keep saying empathy, but it's just like that normalized moment where it's like, okay, there is actually a reason why this is happening. And then everyone can kind of just get on board instead of feeling completely like you're in a cave without a flashlight, you know, and that's the worst feeling when you're trying to actually be in solution and you just don't even know where to go. It was a special thing because it had been missed for so long. He still lives in our town and I get to see him and he's like doing so well and it's like so awesome. I <laughs> you know, know he got married. Yeah. And he'll sometimes like could check in and ask how I'm doing. And, you know, it's a small enough town that he has a profession that he actually ended up being a worker at our house. And I came home for lunch one day and there he was. That's <laughs> just like, so it's funny how that can happen. But he, yeah, what an exceptional human. And, um, you know, just a testament to, you know, people just continuing to stay with the process and figuring it out. One of the things that I've learned in the last few weeks is 90% of what we know about the brain we've learned in the last 10 years. 
you know, so it's flipping everything, kind of all the paradigms. I'm always shocked how much like the big book and recovery had it right. Like, and but I also know neurobiologically why, you know, like, I'm like, oh, that's why that works. And that's why that steps like that. And, you know, all the things because you start to recognize their brilliance of just intuitiveness that they knew, but also now we're getting to just really support and shift what needs to change from, I think, the psychological model of diagnosis and labeling and, and all of that, which is a part of the story. But it, so much about it, I think, is getting into what you can start to do about it. How often after that or, or when you were working in addictions, did you find a hidden brain, a traumatic brain injury like that? Was that a common thing that you saw? Yes. And I think the other one that is often minimized and overlooked is surgical history. It can really do something similar where person is okay, they're managing and then off the rails. That's a really common one that gets overlooked. And we don't think about it because surgery is so normal in our culture. But if you really think about what you do when you go into surgery, you reenact a free state. And with parasympathetic dominance, which for some people, they're doing everything they can to avoid that, or that's where they live. And then you also, you basically reenact near death experience. If anyone has any of those types of things going on, it can really get triggered and tripped. And same thing with traumatic brain injury, like we're not working with an entire system. If this person can't process that part of how you're trying to talk to them, or they can't see spatial awareness and see the long term effect of a decision, you're basically just talking to a wall, you know, you're not going to get in there. And so there's definitely some areas like that, that oftentimes we would we sat around the table and would troubleshoot, it would be those types of things that were stopping progress. That's really interesting. I read somewhere that the chances of or the the likelihood of addiction went up significantly. And I, I can't define significantly. I don't remember, but it went up significantly if a child had anesthesia. And I'm wondering if that's part of it didn't from what I remember, it didn't necessarily say if a child had surgery, but it did say anesthesia. And I remember thinking about that as it relates to my own kids going, well, we don't want to put fuel on the fire. You know? right. But yeah, that was a, a piece of it. Is that related to that? Yeah. I mean, I, that's probably a better way to say it. It's not necessarily the surgery. It's the anesthesia. Oh, really? Okay. Really does, yes. And so it's something that I can't even tell you how many times it was like, like I said, the, the, person was doing pretty good. And then all of a sudden, it was just this total about face. Things just got really unmanageable and overwhelming. And I'm sure in your career as a listener, you've also seen like the classic story of I got my wisdom teeth out and then you know, first introduction to opiates, and then it's kind of off and running. Because we know that before that, there was all these process addictions, right? There's a history of shoplifting or porn or video games or, you know, whatever they're doing to, you know, manage that that traumatic in injury in their body. And then once they get that exposure to, oh, well, that feels really good for that, <laughs> then it's kind of off the races for so many people. Like, it was just uncanny how many people had that in their story. How often do you think it was the introduction of the new substance that took over the previous behavior versus the actual effects of the anesthesia putting your brain into a certain state that created some sort of trauma? 
both were were prevalent and it's kind of like the chicken or the egg. Was it the surgery and the anesthesia exposure and really affecting the nervous system in that way where we're reenacting trauma events, but we don't really know we are? Or is it that I, I got to have the feeling of feeling high and it was like, oh, that was that's really great. I want more of that. It's hard to say. Did you see it with kids who didn't have the opportunity to make the decision to continue use, but did have the anesthesia? Was there some connection there? Yeah, because I, I really do think what I've observed is trauma kind of compounds. If we have those early imprints, which I don't think we give enough credit for the zero to seven experience because it's subconscious, we don't have memories attached to it, but we do have bodily sensations and feelings about it, but we just don't necessarily know why. And I think as you go through the ages and stages and the more that gets piled in there, it can be the littlest, most insignificant looking thing that triggers the whole complex to go. It's triggering something from zero to seven, and then you're acting that out. Until you develop that and make that conscious, you're kind of just on a rinse and repeat cycle. That's really, I mean, these are the principles that we're teaching in a simplified way to these Gen Z college students, because I just feel like once you know these things, it's it's a game changer. My whole life changed when I realized there was a reason why I was doing what I was doing. It wasn't just because of my genetics or because of something that I felt really powerless over. And, and it it just empowered me to, to realize I, I did have agency and I had the ability to work with my system and, and do what I wanted to do and get the life that I wanted. With the clients that you're working with today, the athletes, these you know incredible athletes, they've probably been on this trajectory a long time and you're talking to them about performance. What are you teaching them if they've been doing this, doing their sport for, for many, many years? What are you coming in and teaching them that's different, that has a different bent than the other mentors or coaches? That have been teaching in the past. Well, luckily, because of my training, like in addictions, and I really do know how we change. And so I think we're just having a completely different conversation. First, I don't tell people what to do. I teach them how they're wired and I let them decide how they want to move through that information. I think that's a different approach for sure. I think a lot of what we see in athletics, especially our thinking approaches, like just think positive, grit, positive psychology, those have been the solutions. I always say it's not that those are bad, but what do you do when they don't work? And they aren't going to work if you have a dysregulated nervous system and you have a amygdala that's firing that there's a threat. You can try to put a positive band-aid on that all day long and it's not going to do a damn thing. <laughs> Sorry, it's just not. And so we're approaching the paradigm completely differently. First of all, we're leveraging technology. So we're every like similar to you, we're making it so that it's accessible to people from all over the world. I think that that's a difference. But then in the system, they learn about how they're wired. So they literally learn about the brain and the way that stress cycles. And then they learn about their nervous system and the way it does. And then we get into the mindset. We actually talk about the subconscious, which is what's dictating 90 to 95% of how you perform. So if you have that in line, you're you're going to go to autopilot. And if your autopilot believes that the last time you faced this pitcher, you sucked, then that's what's going to win, you know? And so you have to learn how to work with that and how to help shift that. That's not a thinking problem. It's a, actually a bottom up. We've got to help you get regulated and baseline, we call it, so that then you can think and do the things you know how to do physically. 
how do you go bottom up with a, let's say, let's take the pitcher example. Okay. So every time I face this pitcher, I choke and you are saying I have to have a different belief subconsciously, right? Or are my autopilot has to be different than this. How do we get me to that place? And how do you know if I've actually changed? We really do work with what we call the bet brain. You know, what is going on in your body brain, we call it, which is your nervous system. So what state are you in? Do you need to hit the reset button to get into baseline, which would be breathing or looking around your environment and finding five of your favorite color and just allowing that part of your brain to realize because it doesn't know that the difference between a real or perceived threat. And so you have to give it data and it talks to you through the five senses. It doesn't talk to you through calm down. Like my favorite meme is nobody in the history of man has calmed down by being told to calm down. It's just like so true. So the more your brain actually, when it hears calm down, it's like, oh, freak out, freak out more because our brain doesn't work in opposites and especially not our subconscious. So all the solutions of this thinking strategy for stress are like, I'm like, guys, if it worked, we, we'd all be stress-free. <laughs> Come on. We get into that and help them learn how to listen to their sensations and and their, and you know, just even like I, I got a text from an athlete the other day and she said, you know how you told us to ground ourselves, like feel our feet on the floor. She goes, I don't know why, but when you taught me that, I just picture my little pinky toes digging in. And so in the middle of a game, I'll just picture my pinky toes and then I'm ready. And I'm just like, that's so awesome. And that's an example of her working with her body brain, you know, and she's not thinking, oh, I need to do this perfectly or I've got to do that or, you know, whatever we end up usually doing. So we work with that. And then we teach them about what we call the emotion brain, which is used to be called the limbic system, but basically the amygdala. And we teach them about how to how that communicates. And, and how to start to work with that. And so once you get those two in line, you can kind of work on being yourself and, and the thinking will work. Another part of our program then is about how do I talk to myself and how do I talk to other people? Because that tends to be a place of stress as well. You can identify all of this internally, but if you can't articulate that to your partner, to a coach, to a, to a teammate, you're going to kind of suffer in silence. Have you looked at anything with regard to, and of course, this is a selfish question, with regard to starting teaching these things to kids what about now? What what can we teach kids? What can we teach kids so they don't have to get in front of that pitcher and think that or don't have to spend five years in Little League saying, I'm so bad at this? What yeah. was the first thing you would tell a little kid to try to understand that they have a nervous system? What does that sound like? So the way that I I would try to like kind of relate, well, first I would teach them that the best thing they can do is take the slowest exhale that they can. If they're feeling, you know, I, you know, if they feel jumbles or rage or whatever, you know, just start like naming those things and, and normalizing the sensations we feel in our nervous system, you know, and just teaching them how to blow through their tongue, <laughs> you know, or blow through a straw or, you know, do a lion breath or whatever, you know, like making that fun with little littles. That's where I would start is just making them aware of what does it feel like when you're angry versus when you're sad? What does it need? You know, teaching them just how to attune to it, I think is a big part that's missing. We ignore what we talk about is we ignore a lot of the speeding train. And then all of a sudden we're hit with it. And it's like your body gave you so many cues before you you had the meltdown. You know, I mean, it like, you know, it warned you with extra sweat and saliva and, you know, and then it warned you with like a flashback moment. And then it warned you with a sensation. And then 
you know, and so if you don't know that language, it doesn't matter. You know, it, it just doesn't. I feel like when you know your wiring, at least that's the common thread, right? It's like, okay, even if life changes, I still can recognize what's going on if I know, if somebody's taught me and I can then have some agency around it. And we really try to normalize. Guys, this is a forever process. Nobody's winning here. There's no medals. <laughs> you know, this is a lifelong learning experience. So I think if you can equip yourself with a, a little bit more awareness, like, like that'll help. But at the end of the day, and what I always hope happens is inevitably, I feel like when you open that door, it leads them to the next door for them, the book they need, the podcast they need, or, you know, whatever the therapy they need, whatever, you know, might be the thing that keeps them on their journey. What's been the most surprising thing about your Gen Z athletes that has come up in the last couple of years that you guys have had to either tailor your program to or or think differently about? I think the most surprising thing for them is how similar they all feel. Whenever I'm in a room and we work with a group or online, that'll always be the takeaway. I just never knew other people felt like this. I never knew they I had that in common with that teammate. You know, I never would have thought that. I thought we were on completely opposite ends. And I think it's the same thing with the coaches too. I think so often we can mistake nervous system features for personality. Mm. And mm. I think that that surprises people when they start to be like, oh, that person was just in a fight response. They're not just a complete asshole. Oh, <laughs> you know, like, and then you can kind of have that relatability. And so I think that's the surprise it, that continues to unfold. What are some of the actionable, like your top five actionable? So we have like the grounding of the feet or the deep breathing. What are some other actionable things that you recommend to your athletes? We have what we call one, two, three goes, which are like things that I can do in the moment when I'm stressed. And so I think that that is a key ingredient is what can I do in 30 seconds that it can help me go from a level 10 to a seven to then maybe a five. And I think that's a step that a lot of people take for granted because it's usually something very simple, like one slow exhale. We teach one of the simplest breathing techniques we teach is two quick inhales and an exhale. And so I don't know if you've ever watched an animal that's stressed like a dog, but that whenever a dog has been around chaos, it'll eventually go over to the corner, go in a circle, do that same breathing and lay down. <laughs> and it's like, is humans are missing those stress cues. And because we have a frontal cortex, so we tell ourselves like, I'm fine. In wild animals, they don't have a frontal cortex that operates in that same way. So we don't see like, that's how SE was discovered, somatic experiencing, was he saw that wild animals weren't traumatized and humans were. And he's like, what's up with that? Yeah. So I think getting a routine together with things I can do really quickly. And then we have what we call one, two, three slows, which are things like, how do I have a tough conversation. You know, just finding things to support the hard things that you don't like doing and just having a habit lined up. So we have a framework called the near format. And it's basically you name the problem. But what, where we miss tough conversations where we don't get it right is we don't explain how that is affecting us on a personal level. So what happens is people can't relate to us. So then they don't really care. 
because it's not an issue to them. So the, you know, the format that we really ask them to do is like get really good at explaining exactly what's happening to you inside. When this happens, I feel this, 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 and this. And inevitably, that's when conversations start to shift. And then you ask for what you actually need, what you would prefer for them to do. And then you restate the commitment. So it's like the next time this comes up, I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to hold you to that, that you said that you would ask me this. Then we have like a real conversation versus just usually it's like you did this and you did that and you're doing that wrong. And then, you know, it goes nowhere. Okay. Three days later, three minutes later, 30 days later, it's happening again. And really getting into being vulnerable and explaining how they are impacting you, not what they're doing right or wrong, because that's not what it's about. To them, it might be right, and but it's how it's impacting you. It's the same thing with athletes. It's like there's a, a, an area that gets taken very personally is like playing time. And so, you know, coaches are avoiding those conversations with the athletes or the athletes are avoiding that and they're making up all kinds of stories about why they're playing or not playing. And so sometimes it's just like we have to just go for it and have that tougher conversation. So having a way that you can do that where you can follow the framework and write it out and then practice practice it and then go in, well, I'm going to increase the chances that a better conversation is going to happen. Whereas if I'm just telling a Gen Z, well, you need to say something, you need to say something, you need to say something, their nervous system is like, (laughs) absolutely 100%. No, I don't. I'm not doing that. Because every time I've done that, it's gone bad. So no. (laughs) And so they just, there's, it's so much easier to avoid, but then the pile up, right? The stack happens and they they can't do their things. I think it's really amazing what you're doing and really important. You know, we are only getting more stressed, more unhappy, struggling, despite our advancement in technology and all these other places, our social emotional skills are really going downhill. And you see that in our diseases of despair. So I think it it is really important to find ways to meet people and where they are and, and to give them the tools because it's a scary thing to look out and and see for our children what it is that we're creating despite the incredible advances in these other places. Being able to just get it into the education system is huge because then they're able to really just have access to the information as part of their learning. At the college I work at, they had this class called Univ 101. And the class before was just, it was basically an get used to our college, know about us, and then start to develop professional tools, which was awesome. And then my boss asked me to come in and reinvent the class with stress and self-management. Everyone's talking about this class like it's the 15th credit, you know, or the, or the last credit. And I'm like, y'all, we need to start telling people this is the first credit. Like if they don't know how to manage their internal system with stress and they don't know how to create learning outcomes, it doesn't matter if it's the 15th credit. They won't even get past the first semester. We have to start to look at learning differently is my overarching heart of all of this is, you know, if we really want to understand how to thrive, we have to look at learning and how our internal health shows up so that we can actually take in the information that we're trying to learn. We're working on that paradigm shift. (laughs) I'm glad. I'm glad you are because it's really important. I've worked with families before and they're they're worried about their kids as my parents were, you know, stepping off the path and the education path, the success path. And one of the things I always tell them is I was born, you know, my my dad went to Harvard Business School. I lived on the campus when I was a little kid. My parents met at Ivy League University. I had I went to great schools. I had all the opportunities in the world that you could, you know, in terms of education wise. And I could not manage 
despite my intellect, I couldn't manage in those settings because of my social emotional skills. It didn't matter. And in fact, I got into this extremely prestigious boarding school and had to decline it because I literally said to my parents, I will get thrown out of the school. I can't like, I'm not even going to, we're not, let's stop pretending. I'm not going to, I have a cocaine problem. I'm not going to be able to do it. And so I was able to make it back to a couple prestigious schools after I got sober, after I learned skills. But all the access in the world could not have made a difference for my ability to withstand and absorb that education. It just didn't matter. When I look at my kids, I think the most important that, yes, I want them to read and I want them to speak English well and those things. But when I think about their education and when I think about them, I believe in my heart as having this experience that if they don't have the emotional regulation skills, it won't matter. It won't matter how smart they are because it did not matter how smart I was. I couldn't emotionally handle it. I could not agree more. And I feel like we're missing the mark there with the young people. We also are really missing the mark in empathizing with them and what their stress really is and the implications of technology. And so I think that, you know, you asked me what surprises people. And I think when I start to tell them that Gen Zs are the first generation that was raised with iPads in their hands and that used technology as is a self-soothing device and didn't have emotional regulation or co-regulation with their parents because their parents are having to live the American dream and work lots of hours and not available and which is no hate on them. We're all trying to make it, you know, but that those are the effects we're starting to see. You know, they're also a generation of surveillance. They're followed around all the time. I mean, I my parents didn't know what my grades were until every semester I got a report card and I had to bring it home. You know, my parents didn't know whether I was at a party or the library or if I was speeding in my car or they were just having, not only are they stressed, but they also are having to almost be perfect. And because parents are afraid. So they are managing their fear through technology and control mechanisms, and they are taking their agency away from their children to learn those skills internally. So then they are getting to college and they can't manage it because they never learned how to. They don't have the flexibility to adjust if they get dropped from a class or something goes wrong and they fail a test, you know, because all they've known is, well, my parents can actually see that the minute my teacher enters it in. And so there's not like this internal locus of control. It's just completely surveillance technology. You know, I always say like in a day, did you check your bank account? There's a threat, real or perceived. Your your nervous system doesn't know. You know, did you get an email? Did you forget you had a test? Did you get a text? You know, this thing is an assault weapon when it comes to threats, you know, if we're not careful. And so I always say, I'm never going to tell you to get rid of your phone. Like that's just silly, but you need to recognize what it does to you. Yeah. <laughs> You know. uh, Anna Lemke, I had, she's the head of addiction and dual diagnosis at Stanford. I had her on the podcast and she talks about how the smartphone is the modern day hypodermic needle and that we're all, and, and it's true. It's funny. You know, I, I've said to my parents, you know, you know, you guys didn't know how prevalent child abduction and molestation and all these things were, what, you know, when we were kids or whatever. And uh, they're like, yeah, but we didn't know that. You're right. But you guys have 10 times the amount of oversight. And it's true. When I think about my parents had no idea where we were or what we were doing or any of those things. And my assumption, like my thought is 
that I'll always know where the kids are. And I'll always, you know, it's a very different mindset, parenting mindset. You know, I really never thought about it from the perspective of, oh, I'm being surveilled. They know where I am, what I'm doing. Because it wasn't my experience. But you're right. That's something, it's really something to think about is what would it feel like if every mistake I ever made had to be public to my family? Although <laughs> mine kind of was, but <laughs> right. eventually part of how we learn is by doing. And so there's probably a sweet spot in there for every family to find the difference between checking every moment and allowing your child to develop that internal locus of, of right and wrong and motivation and failure and success. And I think there's just such a narrow version of success right now out of fear. I think people are just scared their kids won't make it. You know, that's living in them. Our fear is being passed to them. So I think they, you know, we've got to manage our own nervous systems <laughs> and our own fears and, and be able to have tougher discussions, in my opinion, and be able to really talk and develop that piece of our of our child development and help them see where they're where they're maybe erring and where they are, you know, nailing it. I love that. Well, you're incredible. And I'm so glad that our paths crossed. And I love what you're doing. Where can people find you if they want to go through your program or send it to the 10 people they're thinking of while they're listening to this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we have our, our website. It's aqathlete.com. And then our socials are aqathletics official. So they can find us on Instagram or Facebook there. Soon there'll be com, which is for these programs with the education pieces at the college level. And probably even in the next couple of weeks, we're working on that part. So we can start to get into the schools and, and more athletic departments, like what we're doing with these 1500 students. So that'll be coming. I think those are the main the main ways for sure. I mean, obviously, please reach out and DM or you can send us an email if you want at Stacia, S-T-A-S-I-A at aqathlete.com. No, just reach out. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's so good to see you. And I am so glad our paths crossed and, and honestly glad for social media that it's like, kept, I feel like I haven't not seen you. I, I kind of even know like how your business is doing. And it's like so cool. And your your academics, congratulations on all of that. Thank you. And your Thank little you. Twins, everything. It's just cool. Life is, it's nice that we have that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Stacia. Absolutely. Hello, beautiful people. I am here with producer extraordinaire, Scott Drotchelman, as Siri calls him. <laughs> That's pretty good. I'll take that. With uh, telephone solicitors, I would know because they'd be like, is Scott Drotchelman there? And I'd be like, no, he is not. I am not aware of such a person. Seems like a real happening gent. <laughs> and I don't know anything about that guy. So <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Drotchelman. Uh, Drotchelman. That's lovely. There you go. Prettier than the real pronunciation. Well, yeah, I, uh, I, what, I, yeah, wait, what are we talking about? We're talking about oh. Stacia, <laughs> our pal Stacia, and all of the all of the wisdom that she gave us about how to perform like a fighter jet pilot. Can I be honest that I was a little disappointed that there was no opportunity for her to work in Top Gun, how she could apply some of the lessons of the second Top Gun movie, like how those could intermingle with her strategies. That's yeah, like still, that's... what do you do when the G's hit? Exactly right. Or what do you do when Tom Cruise like lowers his sunglasses a little bit and gives you like a wink? Like, what do you do then? That's stressful. I'm not going to say what I do then. <laughs> 
my fear response. It's a trick. That's a trick. <laughs> I know what you're doing. <laughs> you're trying to get me to say things. So put me in jail. <laughs> yeah. I mean, step one, get in the fighter jet. Step one, step get in the two, fighter jet. Find someone who knows how to turn it on. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's a very cool transition given her background, knowing that she was a division one athlete, that she can take some of the lessons learned working in a high stakes field and apply them to. I mean, let me just be honest. I like sports. I would say the stakes are lower <laughs> than, <laughs> than in the addiction world, personally, you know, or but, the uh, fighter pilot world. Well, I guess that's a big one. They probably don't feel that way. And the brain, the nervous system doesn't know the difference. When you're playing Little League, your brain thinks you're in a fighter jet Absolutely. over NAM. Absolutely. <laughs> the number of times that I have found myself <laughs> relating to characters in sort of Vietnam movies when I was, you know, a third grader trying to play uh, baseball. Mash. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say <laughs> mash? <laughs> I just want to tell everybody there's a heat wave where I am and anything that is said or done here can and will not be used against me <laughs> as the I heat mean, penetrates my amygdala. Right, right. Let's talk us through kind of the stressors that are upon you right now. It's the oppressive heat. It's the fact that your child has been on a sp oh my spending God. spree on your phone. So while we were in this podcast, I got a text from my husband that says, could you please check the credit card and make sure that our son does not actually have access to purchase things on his iPad because he keeps telling me that he's purchasing things and he's using the word purchasing. I did give your son your credit card number and Perfect. I taught it to him in a song so he'll remember it forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh oh. Review the recent activity below. Uh, Ashley, let us know immediately if you or anyone you authorized used your Citibank debit card ending in blah, blah, blah for the activity noted below. Okay. The activity noted below. Prime video. Mm. Sounds like him. So I guess now that that card is not, you know, by the time this episode comes out, so if you just want to give out the credit card number to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all the listeners, that would be sweet. So they can go and buy Stacia's <laughs> program of stress management. Absolutely. Did you play sports? No. Yes. You did? I did. What did you play? What did you play? Basketball. Like, like speed soccer. walking, bowling. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Keep going. <laughs> Basketball, soccer, volleyball, softball, track, swim, dance. Um, that's everything I played competitively. And you played them till about eight years old. Then you were out. I played volleyball in high school and I was on the varsity team. And then shooting heroin really fucked with my ability to do that. So I dropped out. Everything fell apart 15. So everything stopped at that point. But so about 15. Yeah. Okay. I played fine. adult softball at one point. Yeah. On a co-ed team. Oh. I'll have you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Wow. And we'll, we'll get some highlight videos and send those out over our socials. So just keep an eye out for those. So basically, I was on my way to being a professional athlete. <laughs> and I, all I needed was a little training. Well... Oh, okay, great. So you do, you have the <laughs> resume. Fine. You've proved you're a super athlete. I'm sorry. God. Anyway, no, I just wish that they you had... Were an, you almost went pro. I, I had aspirations of doing such a thing. Yes. 
I I went to pro tryouts for things. But what I was going to say is I just really wish that Stacia's program had been around then because I feel like people love to go like, you know, sports, they just teach you so much about life. And uh, up until that point, what they taught me was that when I lost, I should be clinically depressed until I found a game where I played better. I would have benefited greatly for some from some of her something other than just the positive self-talk of just like, I'm the best hitter there was. Uh, you know, that doesn't that doesn't work when it all falls apart. I went to Catholic school. There was no positive self-talk involved. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, you will regret everything. <laughs> I hope you have guilt in your heart. <laughs> God sees what you did on the field and he's disappointed in you. Yeah. What did you think about the uh, the case we worked on together? I've, I've never even heard of somebody like going down that road and investigating in that way. I've never Never been asked ever if I had head trauma, and <laughs> That's a good I have. <laughs> and they should have looked at my behavior and said, "Certainly had trauma. Certainly." <laughs> I've never been asked if I've had head trauma. I, think I guess that's the more goal. it was maybe it was assumed because they were just like, "Oh, of course, that guy. Look at that big no dome he's got. That's, that's like a God's own gravitational force. So of course, <laughs> objects were drawn to it and uh, collided as they do. Did you find other instances where people were asking those kinds of questions? Questions, or was that sort of like a one-off where that ended up being a part of the treatment that was provided? I have been in other instances where we discover there's been a TBI, there's been some sort of traumatic brain injury or, or otherwise, but that was just information, right? Like either either it didn't affect them enough that we needed to change the therapy or the person doing the therapy wasn't trained in how to do therapy differently. What was interesting about this case was that he was not progressing, the, the client. She thought about this, right, from her training and then discovered it and then pursued a different way of interacting with him, which drastically changed the outcome. I have never been part of such a bold, apparent, obvious change in all the ways. Like it was like, okay, he's not progressing. He may have to leave this program. And Stacia says, wait a minute. I want to see if I want to pursue this line of questioning and see if this is, then she identifies it. Then she changes the therapy. Then he starts to do well. Trauma-informed therapy. And I think people who have a background in neurochemistry and can talk to people about how their brain works, one of the things that happens is it, you, it can explain to you like you're in fight or flight. You're, it, your brain doesn't know the difference between a perceived threat and an actual threat. That type of information seems silly, but when you do understand that type of information, you start to understand have you ever had a like a moment where your kid almost got hit by a car, or your kid almost drowned or whatever the thing was? And it didn't necessarily even almost happen. It just felt like it almost happened. Your body just dumped all those chemicals in as if that had happened. So you are experiencing the momentary, even though your brain knows it hasn't happened, your child's standing right there, blah, 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 blah. Your physical system just lost a child. It may be 10 seconds, but it is a, that feeling is, yeah, you want to vomit. I think when you understand why it is that you feel that way when you're like, okay, I got to give my body a second to calm down. I'm still like, when you recognize there's lag time between the two things that just 
happened, I think it helps you integrate the two experiences better. And it gives you more compassion and acceptance around the rate at which your primitive brain functions versus what you can think. So much of the lack of quote unquote dealing with trauma is that lag between what you think you know and what you tell yourself, well, I know it wasn't my fault and I know blah, 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 technically, but what your body believes, what your tissues believe, how much adrenaline was pumped into your system, how much, you know, all those things. So you're fighting between those two realities and neither one of them is any less real than the other. And I think that is really a hard concept to really digest. And when you do, you might be able to respond to the world differently. I just, maybe my biggest call to action from this whole episode is that I hope we can normalize doing what a dog does when they're feeling <laughs> flushed, oh, yeah. where I just go in the corner and I do a couple circles and I do the quick like two inhales and an exhale and then I just lay down. And that's my way that I can signal to people that I am, you know, I'm not doing great at the moment and I just, I need to lay here and uh, nap or whatever, that. you know? <laughs> I support that and I support you filming it. Because <laughs> if you didn't, don't film it, it didn't happen. You know, so uh, Ashley, a yeah. lot of talk about performance today. Oh, boy. A lot of, a lot of talk about uh, how to handle that. And so yep. I've got a, got a topical, topical one for you today. Okay. All right. Hit me with it. Okay. So um, guy walks into a bar and uh, he was disqualified from the limbo contest. A guy walks into a bar. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. You there? Are you there? there. You I'm caught there. up? I'm caught up. She's hungry, guys. I'm She's up. hungry. She's hot. There's a kid making charges. I was charges. picturing an establishment <laughs> with alcohol, okay? You can imagine why that would confuse me. You got excited and then you yeah, were like, oh, no, no, Yeah, I got no, excited. No, no. You said it's he was in a bar. bar. Yeah, yeah. I was very excited <laughs> about this man's journey into the bar. What did he have? I mean, what did he have? What did he What did he order? Whiskey, was it? Yeah. And meanwhile, you're talking about limbo bars. Yeah. So it took me a minute. All right. Was there any cool people there? Or like, yeah. what was it like? What was the music like? Can you smoke inside or, yeah. you know? Shots? <laughs> <laughs> What's happening? Any more? Uh, we hope Stacia's uh, interview was helpful for folks, and maybe there's some things to take away, and then maybe there's maybe some uh, places to turn when you want to give your kids some of this EQ stuff that I at least didn't have locked in at that age. But yeah, we are rooting for you this week. We hope it's an amazing week. Ashley, anything you want to leave them with? I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I hope you are able to do maybe some of the grounding exercises that we talked about. Try them. Report back. If you get a chance, it helps us greatly. If you are willing to rate and review this podcast, written reviews on Apple Podcasts are extremely helpful for us. So if you want to support our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review. Much, much appreciated. And I hope you have a wonderful week. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.